Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast series Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. I am Perlin Wong, Head of Investment Promotion and Solutions Asia. And today I'm joined by David Wilson, APAC Wealth Management Lead for Accenture. Hello, Perlin. Very happy to be here today. And we're very happy to have you here as well, David. Accenture has just released a new report from the Future of Asia Wealth Management series. And Julius Baer is part of the Asia Advisory Board for this. Thank you for inviting us to join this. David, as the lead for the report, can you tell us what it's all about? The background is that we realise there has been somewhat a lack of Asia-focused thought leadership in the wealth management industry. So at Accenture, we wanted to put together the most comprehensive publication out there in order to bring depth and clarity to our industry. The report, which as you mentioned, launched uh, on June 6, is focused on the future of advice in the region. It's effectively a series spanning across four reports. So we have the main report, which is on the future of advice, looking at the personas of clients in the region, their demand for different types of advice, and the implications and opportunities for firms. And then we have three satellite reports around this, uh, this overall topic, but looking into specifics. We have two satellite reports around the proposition, one on digital assets and the emerging need for advice and solutions for investors uh, on this topic, and then one on ESG investing, looking at the penetration and the challenges for ESG to take off in the region. And then our final satellite report is on RM or relationship manager empowerment, looking at how firms can get more out of their existing stock of high-value human capital, in addition to obviously looking to augment that with aggressive hiring plans. If I close, I'd say what helps the series stand out uh, and what I hope to maybe bring some insights in today is the depth of the research. We spoke to or surveyed over 3,200 affluent and high net worth investors across eight Asian markets, similarly 600 RMs across the same market scope, And we interviewed 22 CXOs of wealth management firms in the region, again, including uh, your team at Julius Baer, to understand the the voice of the firm in addition to the voice of the client and the voice of the RM. So really looking forward to sharing some of those insights today. You mentioned, David, that one of the key topics within the series is on ESG investing in Asia, which is also one of our key focus areas at Julius Baer. So I just want to dive in a little bit more on this topic As our CEO, Philip Rickenbacker, mentioned in our 2021 sustainability report, and I quote, private investors worth $42 trillion worldwide are at the vanguard of a turning tide and can send important signals to the market. What did you find when you asked Asia Wealth Management clients more about this topic? I think I can summarize the findings of the ESG publication in four points. Firstly, ESG investing in Asia at a penetration level is currently modest, uh, or at least modest back in January when the survey was done, with 32% of investors in the region having actually taken ESG investments in their portfolio. 
But reassuringly, we see this penetration rate set to more than double by the end of the year based on their stated intentions. Uh, and this growth will be driven not just by investor demand, but the ongoing push from regulators and governments in the, in the region. So that's point number one. Secondly, and as a result, wealth management firms' operating models, we believe, will need to change from the front to the back. For instance, what this means is having at the very top of the house an ESG strategy, a clearly defined ESG strategy articulated and signed off at board level, then moving further into the org, making sure there's government governance frameworks for ESG, both within the firm, but also in terms of how the advisory mandates are run. The data, making sure that the firm's data is in order, in order to be able to measure and monitor ESG performance accurately. And then, of course, there's the talent agenda, because to deliver ESG investing advice, the RMs, the middle office, all of the people involved will need to be comfortable actually talking about the topic. And then lastly, reporting and other tools will be key to embed ESG into performance reviews with clients. Uh, so that's the, the second point. I think thirdly, on the relationship manager side, and encouragingly, we see that they recognize client demand. But what they say is they lack content, insights and solutions. For instance, 90% of RMs believe their clients have or will invest in ESG solutions in the next 12 months. And this, while it actually overstates client demand slightly, uh, it's a positive sign because it means they're on top of where the trend is going. But the flip side is they actually cite a, a lack of support in key areas to meet this client need. And this especially relates to insights and data on ESG that makes them smarter and able to serve clients, as well as the reporting and product and services that's needed to be able to offer to clients. And then lastly, I'd say firms need to overcome kind of a couple of core client concerns for that adoption rate to increase as much as we hope it will. Because there's been a perception for quite some time in the industry globally, not just in Asia, with some clients that ESG investing means sacrificing your returns, almost harking back to the original uh, kind of concept of ESG as charitable giving or, or philanthropy, which we know is no longer the, the actual definition of ESG. Uh, that's something that can hold demand back from some clients, as can the general complexity of understanding ESG parameters. So this is the uh, four-point summary of the, of the report, but obviously very happy to go into some of the details. Great. I, I think that was a very comprehensive overview. I just wanted to come back to talking about these things uh, in general terms, because we cannot just generalize for all of Asian clients, their perceptions around this topic. Asia is our second home. We have a presence in several cities in Asia, uh, some hub cities, and also we are quite well aware of the intra and inter-country differences. But you know, coming back to the survey findings, um, did, do you find a difference in, in, in geographies when you looked within the region? And furthermore, between age or other demographics? And also, why are there such differences? Well, I think, Berlin, the question is uh, spot on. <laughs> Asia is, is certainly very difficult to talk about as a single block. I think my takeaway would be that the overall trend is strong, regardless of market and demographic in a, in a macro sense. But there's certainly nuance that we see amongst the different um, dimensions, as you mentioned. So let's go maybe one by one, and I'll call out what I, what I found most compelling. If we start with age, I think this is probably the most fundamental difference, because we saw that the demand for ESG investing is very heavily or quite heavily skewed to the younger demographics. 
So 77%, just to illustrate the point, of the so-called younger clients are already investing in ESG or will by the end of the year versus 45% of the so-called older clients above 50 years of age. So you see there's quite a kind of bifurcation there, which means that this is, I think, set to to further accelerate given wealth transfer and, and just the general aging of, of the investor base. At the affluence or wealth level, ESG investing also is higher amongst the, um, as you move up the affluence curve. And again, I think this could be explained probably by better access to ideas and products. So what we see is that 85% of investors in, who have 5 million US dollars or more or $10 million US or more are investing or plan to invest versus less than 70% if you're in the kind of more mass affluent wealth levels of 100,000 to 500,000 or 500,000 to 1 million US dollars net wealth. Uh, and again, as I said, I think it's partially linked to the fact that if you're in the higher wealth levels, you'll have a private banking relationship private banks are arguably a little bit more ahead of the curve when it comes to the sophisticated products and solutions and opportunities to invest in in ESG compared to kind of maybe more of a retail banking plus model. Uh, And then at the country level, this one's fairly consistent. In Southeast Asia as a block, so Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, 70 to 80% of clients are investing or will invest in ESG. So that's quite consistent, quite high in this sub-region. In China and India, the big two kind of markets, 73 and 77%, so also quite high. The only laggards in our survey were Hong Kong and Japan at 57% and 37% investing or planning to invest in the next 12 months. I see. That's quite interesting and consistent with what we understand also from our discussions with our clients. Demand that's high amongst young clients Um, But our Asian clients, being practical people, often also balance these perspectives with an eye on returns and, um, at least for many years, uh, income enhancement. I understand you also surveyed the demand for specific ESG investment products. Can you tell us what kind of ESG investment products were surveyed as being most in demand? And what wealth management services do clients really want, really value? And also, why do you think... Well, it's a great question and we start to get a little bit more concrete now. So thank you for that. On the product side, uh, so maybe your first question, we see ESG funds, uh, ETFs, exchange traded funds, and bonds are the most in-demand products. Again, I'll illustrate with some numbers. 71 to 76% of investors in the region are interested in these three product types, the top three. Although I will say that some of the other product types, are they don't fall off in terms of demand so, so sharply. There's interest quite broadly in many areas. But these are the big three. And this is broadly true across wealth bands and demographic. What's interesting, though, is that, and I think it's noteworthy, that clients with investable assets above 10 million US dollars particularly interested in private markets ESG opportunities. And this moves into the top two for, for this sub-segment of the investor base. And I think, again, it goes speaks to, I think, this, this drive we've had over the last few years that private market, private equity opportunity, being able to take kind of seed and uh, Series A positions in some of these high-growth ESG firms is quite attractive to a lot of investors. So that's on the, on the product side. Maybe moving to your second question, What we see is that clients want solutions delivered through an end-to-end advisory offering. And this end-to-end offering should integrate some of the kind of specific services. For example, portfolio construction and modeling, 
standardized ratings, integrated reporting. Again, always illustrating with numbers. Uh, from our survey, we saw that the range across all of these dimensions was around 79 to 80% saying that these services were valued. And what it implies is that firms can't ignore any element of the proposition. It needs to be stitched together holistically. You can't just say we're going to have a portfolio-led approach and give you a recommendation and then not do the reporting and everything else on, on the back end. And again, when we look at the demographics and the market view, the single most valued service was advisory. So that's probably the starting point, the building block, but everything else is, uh, is related to it that I just mentioned. And I think the, the reason for this kind of demand for advice and a holistic proposition is quite fundamental given the world we're in at the moment. I think in general, investing is more and more complex to navigate. And we see that the advisory persona in a region that was typically characterized as investors being very self-directed, what we see now is that the advisory persona, the demand for a firm and or an RM to intermediate, intermediate and provide ideas and be a sounding board is the dominant persona. So this creates quite positively the mandate for wealth firms to step in to offer their ideas and their expertise so that clients can navigate these trends and achieve these goals. And ESG is no exception to this dynamic. Certainly. I think we also have seen such trends within our portfolios in Asia. We've actually seen the assets we manage under sustainability mandates grow each year at Julius Baer. In fact, last year we saw a huge surge of interest uh, in our discretionary sustainability mandates, which we actually pioneered more than a decade ago. And just want to also, you know, come back to your point about portfolio transparency and reporting. And this is something we've also addressed um, for the clients um, that we serve. We have developed a proprietary methodology for sustainable investing. And in fact, we are adapting it to give our clients a clearer picture of the extent to which their own portfolios are sustainably invested. So as you have mentioned, David, I think clients do want transparency on a topic. And with transparency, then we have a basis to actually engage in a fuller discussion on a range of solutions to match, you know, the different views, beliefs, opinions of our clients. So coming back again to the survey, which um, has a lot of information, uh, what are some of the concerns and potential misconceptions that clients have right now about ESG? Well, investors did tell us their concerns regarding ESG investing. I would say those mainly relate to the complexity of understanding ESG parameters, the lack of information, including about returns and the transparency, as you allude to, of, of returns, and the limited product choice at wealth management firms, so that even if they want to do it, they can't always get what they want. But these, of course, vary somewhat by the kind of type of the client, in particular based on how much wealth they have. So if I go through the investors in the lower wealth band, so I'll categorize this for, for simplicity of those having 100,000 US dollars to 5 million, although it's quite a wide range, what stands out is that perceived complexity and lack of data and transparency around reporting and impact are the two key concerns. When we look at those in the middle bracket, 5 million to 10 million US dollars, conversely, they believe that the limited product choice is most important or, or most the biggest concern. And then the very wealthiest 10 million dollars and above are concerned that investing on along ESG lines will actually compromise their returns. So the perception we talked about earlier of negative financial impact from investing with an ESG framework. And then I think finally, as a general statement, 
worries amongst the investor base around greenwashing and ESG hype are significant, especially in some markets. For example, in India or affluent investors in India, 50% or just over 50% raise these two topics as a as a, as a significant concern. Uh, so that's not something that can be ignored. The path forward, or I think the opportunity is there for wealth firms to then educate clients, to bring clarity to the discussion in terms of, you know, you don't have to sacrifice returns, to build a proposition that shows very transparently, even though it's not easy, the impact of the portfolio in a non-financial fashion. And this will all be very positive to further allowing this ramp up of demand for ESG investing to continue. I would also add to this the common misconception uh, that we hear from our clients that sustainable investing is still very nascent, emotionally motivated or intangible. In our view, the opposite is often true as um, sustainable companies tend to be a lot more innovative and have the foundations in place to address the challenges ahead. I think coming towards the end of this podcast, just a couple more questions from me. Would you like to share your thoughts about whether financial firms are moving towards ESG because they have to, you know, because it's practical or, or because they want to? And how's the progress looking here? Well, our research shows that most wealth management firms in the region are focused to some degree on the ESG opportunity. So when we spoke to the 22 leading firms that we, we interviewed across the region, 79% of the C-suite executives we spoke to have initiatives in place already related to ESG investing and a further 16% plan to launch offerings in the coming months, which means they're working currently on their strategy, seeking funding, and then they'll start to implement. So I think effectively the whole industry is on top of this. The motivation I would say appears to be pure. It spans both commercial because firms are in business to make money, so commercial reasons, but also ethical imperatives. It's the right thing to do. And from board level down, it's something that the firm has taken a stand in publicly and to shareholders. So these are the kind of primary two drivers, and I think they are consistent and harmonious. In some markets, such as China, we also heard from the executives in the region that there's a strong government push that further pushes and drives the momentum. Uh, and that leads actually to specific investments in certain sectors, such as rural revitalization, carbon emissions uh, and green companies. But regardless of the whether it's commercial, ethical government, at the heart is the belief, and again, which I believe to be genuine, that the investor and the firm can both, if I put in quotation marks, do well by doing good. Uh, it's something that's kind of mutually reinforcing on both sides. So that's the that's the fundamental thesis. Now, in terms of what firms are focusing on, we see three kind of categories. Some firms focus on just one, some are dabbling and, and, and investing in, in all three. The first is clearly on the product side, adding more ESG products to the platform to increase what RMs can offer to clients and what clients can self-serve, whether that's green bonds, whether that's private equity funds. Yeah, this, is, this is a big focus. The second is, I'd say, the ecosystem play. So focusing on partnership and private market opportunities. This could be you know, getting involved with accelerators so that clients can, for their own businesses, be tapped into what's happening in the ESG space, which might be relevant beyond their pure wealth management relationship. But clearly, it's also about being able to tap into the ecosystem where there might be opportunities to directly invest in high growth, high 
potential ESG firms, for example, innovative farming or, or whatever it might be. And then lastly, it's the actual proposition end-to-end to have a fully integrated ESG framework within the end-to-end advisory process so that when investors talk about goals and outcomes at the very beginning of the advisory stage, ESG is seamlessly integrated. And then when we get into actually allocations, reporting and everything else, again, the data and the reporting can can show up. So those are the three areas and we see firms focusing in different parts across these. What I would say is maybe a final remark on this is that in addition to firms already being very active in these areas, based on what we know in what we see in the firm's roadmaps, they're putting real time and money into this. And I would expect this to increase significantly over the next 12 months and more and more examples of propositions hitting the market. Thank you, David, for sharing these useful insights from your report. I have to say that we are completely aligned when it comes to the findings. At Julius Bear, we are hearing these concerns from our clients and we have actually established a holistic sustainability strategy. Uh, What this is, is at the very top, uh, what we have done is defined a framework around two key pillars of firstly, responsible wealth management and secondly, responsible citizenship. Uh, So very briefly, responsible wealth management actually means um, taking different approaches towards ESG and sustainability, factoring into account business and investment activities. For example, we exclude unsustainable companies uh, in the universe. Um, We have strategies focused on sustainability leaders. And we also invest in companies that create a measurable positive social environmental impact and not forgetting the purely philanthropic endeavours. For us, responsible citizenship, the second pillar, encompasses our commitments across a range of activities as a corporation, including as a caring employer and a community partner. Dear listeners, this is all the time we have for today. Uh, We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. On behalf of all of us at Julius Bear, I want to thank you for tuning in. And until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.